Hey everyone, I'm Sharon Pearson. Welcome to Perspectives. I'm so thrilled to be introducing you today. Today's guest is Mr. John Asaroff, a very dear friend of mine. I think we met around 10 years ago and since then we've stayed in touch, mentored each other, support each other, hang out. <laughs> and he's just a phenomenal human being. You may have heard of him. I'm going to read a little bit about him because he's a phenomenal human being and thought leader. So John Asrup has a classic rags to riches story that today sees him regarded as one of the world's leading behavioral and mindset experts. John has built five multi-million dollar companies, written two New York Times bestsellers, sat next to Ellen DeGeneres on her talk show, and worked on eight movies, including the 2006 hit movie, The Secret. He is the founder and CEO of Neurogym, a company dedicated to evidence-based training methods for the mind. He's phenomenal. His latest book, Inner Size, which I've got here, if you've got me on video, uh, promises to help people recognize and release emotional blocks. And he's also dedicating this year, 2020, to talking about overcoming financial adversity in tough times. We didn't get into the financial adversity conversation as much, but we talked about all things mindset. And we talked about fear and overcoming it destination overcoming and self-sabotaging and overcoming it and everything that he shared so generously in this conversation I love that and admire that about him about what he's learned and what's working and what the science is showing can work it's a very inspirational conversation it is dedicated to us being our absolute best selves that we can be and fulfilling our truest potential one of the things I notice that I find really interesting. And I don't know if you've had this experience or you experience it differently. I'd love your insights. But a lot of people in the space, they gear up for short term. They don't seem to be gearing up to be in the game for 20 years or so. It's like I'm, they, they're very excited about volume and they're very excited about big numbers on the front end, like huge webinars or but they're not talking so much about the stick rate. They're not talking so much about the longevity. And I find it really hard to mentor them, John. I find it hard to find a way into that conversation with them because I'm the reverse. I, and I know you're as well. I'm caring about how long people stay and play and want to get value from us. And so all of our attention is on the back end. It's making sure that experience is so good. They only want to stay and rave about us. Do you want to talk about that? Sure. I mean, I mean, think about, you know, uh, uh, another frame to add to that. You know, the average person who works, you know, whether it's in Australia, Europe, United States, makes no difference, you know, and they're making, you know, 50,000, 100,000, if they're doing really well, 150,000, $200,000 in a year. And they're doing well, they're living in a nice home, they have a nice lifestyle. And then all of a sudden they get into, you know, maybe this internet space where you can market to everybody in the world and you can say, well, I can make $200,000 in a weekend. And all of a sudden, you know, the greed factor comes in and you're thinking about that new car that you can get. You're thinking about that second house or that amazing trip you're going to take. And, and so, you know, you're making decisions based on, you know, what your lifestyle may be like today. And it's really sexy uh, to think of that versus think about how am I going to build a business that works for me? where the revenue is recurring and repeatable, the asset is growing, and I can really build a business long-term versus just short-term thinking. And it's, it's alluring and it's sexy. And especially uh, for anybody who really hasn't built a business, uh, mm -hmm. they don't know what they don't know. 
And that's one of the things I love in working with you and working, you know, on, on projects together and supporting each other is I know your value that you bring to the table in the marketplace and to people's lives. And you're in it for the long term. You, of course, you want to help people get results short term, but you're in it for the long term to make sure that, you know, you're growing a business and you're there through the good times and challenging times. Yeah, and I have been, and you've been there with me as well. Thank you. Me I really too. appreciate it. <laughs> One of the things that we met, how long ago was it? I'm trying to remember. I was trying to remember this morning when we were chatting. When Probably, we were chatting. you know, 10 years ago or so on my, one of my tours in Australia. Yes. Yeah. Was it Queensland or North, North New South Wales? I came along and I think I managed to corner you for lunch when you didn't know who yeah, I was. We, we met for lunch after, after uh Know, after the event, I, th I think it was in Melbourne. Was it? Uh, I think it was in Melbourne, but okay. you know, yeah. many, many, many uh, events and people ago. All yeah. I know is I loved you then and I love you now. <laughs> You're so sweet. I, what I loved was your enthusiasm for me. You didn't know me and I was just so keen to hear how you were doing what you were doing because I'd read your books before I met you, John. Um, I'd read the answer when it first came out, I think, which is that's going back a few years now. Yep, I've got, I've got it on my bookshelf. And I actually brought in your latest book with me today. Oh, thank yeah. you. Congratulations. And you were curious and open. How much this business or whatever you want to call being in business, the number of people I see who do well because of openness, curiosity, and they're really into other people. It's not a money venture. It's not how do I make money from it. It's how can I bring value to it? And that's one of the things I fell in love with about you, John. It was immediately we just clicked on that level of wanting to brainstorm. How do we bring value to it? How do we make it bigger and better? Can you talk to that a little bit about openness and curiosity and how it's playing out for you? You know, um, a few years ago, I, I, I've been on Larry King, you know, and he's ancient now, but I was on a show eight times and <laughs> A couple of years ago, I, I had him actually on my show. I interviewed him yeah. on, on one of my shows. And I asked him, I said, Larry, um, what makes you so good at what you do? And he, he said two things that were really, really uh, interesting to me. He said, number one, I asked the questions that the audience wants me to ask if that's what they're thinking about of his guest. That was number one. He said, number two, he said, John, I'm just insatiably curious. Yeah. He says, I, I just want to know stuff. I want to, you know, I want to have a full mind and a full heart uh, of the things that are of interest to me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when, when you and I started to chat, you know, 10 years ago, you were curious. You were also highly intelligent and great at what you did. So as much as you were wanting to ask me questions, uh, I wanted to ask you questions. I wanted to understand how did you think? How did you become successful? You know, everybody's heard this, right? The, the saying, success leaves clues. Well, if you're successful, I want you to give me clues. <laughs> and if I'm successful, you want me to give you clues. And so let's say 90% of what we know is the same and 10% is different. Well, that 10% is a big clue. And so I'm fascinated by finding, you know, little things and big things, uh, d different distinctions, different ways of of explaining something, different ways of understanding something, different things that work for you that may not work for me. And that is coupled with many, many years ago, um, you know, I, I, I was reminded by my first mentor. 
He said, you know, once I teach you what I have learned so that you can be successful, always give away as much as you can to help other people become successful. And, and so I seek to be a go-getter, right? But also a go-giver. Yeah. And so I want to just keep it in flow. And I've discovered in my life is I can't outgive the universe. Yes. I just can't. It's like, and you're, you being down under, you know, this will make more sense to you than probably us here in the United States. But, you know, it's like a boomerang. You throw it out, the darn thing keeps coming back. So I, I agree with you. I, I remember the moment, it was 17 years ago, I started out as a coach, John. I don't know if I've told you this. And I got asked by a potential client, why would I work with you? And I thought that's a really good question. If I don't have a good answer for that, because I want to make the sale, but I better have a good answer for that for myself, for my own sense of me and being my truest self. And I said, well, go and talk to everybody else you're thinking about hiring, then we'll chat. So he went and did that. I was the sixth interview of the day that he'd done. This is very early on. And I said, well, I don't know if I can give you what you want. Let's figure out what you value and what it is you want to achieve and then see if we're a match. And I see a lot of times that maths gets reversed by, the, by people wanting to get. It's like, how do I make the sale? How do I get the business? How do I get? If we reverse it, it gets so much easier. What is it you're looking for? How can I serve you? How can I provide value to you? And if I can't do that, I'm going to refer you on which we've done to you and to what you do and you've done for us. And, but if I can serve you and I can add value that we should be together. And to me, that value conversation is the only one that matters to do well for a long time in any business. It's how do you provide value and how are you showing up ready to give it? And the other thing I noticed was people were holding on John to what they had and you had to spend money before you could get behind the locked door. Whereas I know your attitude and my attitude is, have at it. It's have, have the knowledge. I'll give you what I can. Just have at it. And then it gets even better when you join. So can you speak to that a little bit, that this attitude of generosity and giving, and it's key to being in any business for a long time. You, uh, you sparked, you know, a couple of, um, uh, you know, a couple of, uh, of things in my brain. When I first got into selling, you know, 40 years ago, I was 19. <laughs> Right? So that, that, that puts a little perspective. I remember my first mentor saying, now, if any day you come into the office, and I was doing a lot of telesales like on the phones, you know, calling people I didn't know, you know, phone numbers and, uh, and with a script in front of me, says, hi, this is John Asraf with Alan Brown Real Estate. I was a real estate agent. He said to me, if you ever come into the office and you're thinking about uh, how much money you need to make today to pay for your car, or because you want to go out with a young lady on a date, you need money, uh, or you need to pay for your rent, uh, don't come to the office. He says, every day you walk into the office, I want you to walk into the office wondering how can I serve somebody today on the other end of that line. He said, selling is doing something for somebody, not to somebody for your benefit. So that was my first frame that I learned about selling. Right. Right. And, and I had, like many other people, probably the wrong idea of used car salespeople. And I had this idea and associations with, you know, selling equals like screwing somebody or selling equals doing something to somebody. He set me straight right off the bat. Um, you know, so 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 that's part one, you know, uh, of the trigger. So selling is to do something for somebody. And I lost my train of thought on 
where I was going with that, but I had two really good points, right? So well, I have to go for the second podcast if you want the second thought. <laughs> I love it. Well, the second thought. The second thought was when I wrote um, my book, The Answer: Grow Any Business, Achieve Financial Freedom, and Live an Extraordinary Life. Um, uh, it became a New York Times bestseller, and I remember Jay Abraham, the legendary Jay Abraham, who is one of the leading copywriters and strategists in the world. He read the book, and he says, why are you giving away so much amazing content? You could be selling that. And I said, Jay, I'm going to give people such an overdose of amazing content, they're going to have to understand what they could do to keep going to learn with me. And that, that book right there, forget about how many it sold, but the number of people, okay, that ended up buying uh, programs, coaching, consulting, because of that book and because I was so much into it, yeah. was millions of dollars. And so whenever you put that much value in the marketplace, People get a chance to see that because so few people are prepared to give more than they expect. Yeah. And people have this, um, a lot of people have this mindset of, well, let me hold back. And I'm like, why? <laughs> like baseball players don't hold back. Soccer players don't hold back. Cricket players don't hold back. Football players don't hold back. Rugby players don't hold back. They play full out. They, they put it all on the field. Mm. Put it on the field and watch what happens. Uh, Oh my God, look at all this stuff you have. One of the, I love that. One of the ways I look at it, John, is if this is the line between us, people are trying to keep at what they have and the other person is trying to keep what they have. And if you're on audio right now, I'm using my hands in a really cool way. <laughs> but, but the goal, I believe, to have great relationships and to do really well, I don't mean just financially, I just mean to have a great life, always try and go over that line. If that person tries to go over the line, it's like, you're going to have my back. I'll have your back. So we don't have to watch our own backs. We can let go of worrying about how I'm doing. You can let go of how you're doing because you got me and I got you. And that perpetuates, that transparency and that trust perpetuates relationships to me that go long-term rather than that icky moment when you realize, oh, they were just taking care of themselves then. So right now I've got to pull back a little bit. And so the dance of withdrawal begins. And so I know in my business, the people I've done best with over the years, the longest relationships and the best, including you, have been, you've got my back and I've got your back. How can I serve? Yeah, a lot of people, again, you know, they're, we've, been, we've been taught to operate from a place of fear, yeah. right? Fear of what, what if I give you too much and you don't pay me for it? What if, what if I show you my true self and then you embarrass me or judge me? What if you know, negative consequence. And what I think that, you know, I know you've discovered and I've discovered and many people are, you know, start to discover as they get a little bit older and hopefully wiser is, you know, the more you show up with your authentic self to really help others, the more or the less fear they have yes. about, about you, right? Yes. Versus more fear. And, you know, yeah, if you're, if you're dating, you know, do you put your, uh, your worst foot forward or your best foot forward when you, when you start out? You, everybody wants their best foot forward. Well, why not put your best foot forward with, you know, um, an open heart, uh, uh, you know, a giving spirit uh, so that you can enhance somebody else's life somehow without trading, right? Yeah. So there's a big difference, not trading, 
right? There's I'm giving. Giving means that there isn't an expected return. Yeah. Right. And so I'm going to give just because it just, it's, it's the right thing to do. It's the, it's the way to feel. And what happens when you do that, and uh, you know, we can get into some of the metaphysical sides of it, of, of what happens when you're giving your love, energy, tools, resources, ideas to people. Um, it's just an abundance. It just keeps flowing your way. So operate from a, a place of abundance instead of scarcity. For me, it creates a feeling of trust where I can relax and be more my authentic self. It becomes this loop of self-perpetual. The more I give and that's, and that's received with love and respect or what, there's space for me to turn up, the more I want to turn up and the more I want to turn up versus someone who's very reserved with me or holding back or still waiting to suss me out. I'm like, man, this energy is taking a lot more to get through and for us to make something happen. And it slows down the process of creativity and innovation or whatever it is you want to build together. The project slows down on the rocks of being reserved because I'm going to just hold back. And I see a lot of people doing that. And after so long, it's like, come on, we can do this. We, we, we know what we're doing. Let's just do it and get on with it and have some fun with it. I think there's a lot of childlikeness in you and in me, John, when we do this because yeah. it's just fun. It's meant to just be fun. Yeah, and, and, and to piggyback on that is just because I give, let's say, you or, or him or her, um, it doesn't mean that they are the ones that are going to give me back. It yeah. might just be me giving them or them giving me. Um, but if I consistently am seeking out ways to give, there's other people that are giving me and things have happened, I'm sure, in your life and in my life and Maria's life where, you know, where it's like, oh, my God. Like, you know, can you believe that we just got invited to, you know, a week long trip to Sardinia on this 150 foot yacht of this person we just met? Like, wow. isn't that like a giving that we didn't expect? Well, maybe it wasn't from the people or the person we gave a lot to, but all of a sudden this is somebody just giving us this incredible gift. I personally think that is, you know, the universe at play. Yeah, right? that's fantastic. That's wonderful. Yeah. One of the things you're really big on this year, help me out here and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're talking about procrastination and helping people overcome it. And I, I did used to be an expert on procrastination um, before I made a different decision. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Procrastination cost me years of my life. It cost me a feeling of joy about my life. It cost me a lot of my health because I kept procrastinating getting well and taking care of myself. Mm -hmm. It cost me just feeling like I could live a full life. And I know you'd love to, you're really great at speaking to this, John. I'd love you to share with our listeners and our viewers your thoughts on this. Because I would have wasted 10 years in that procrastination land many, many years ago. It's 27 years ago. Um. As you know, you know, my, my passion is, you know, the neuroscience and neuropsychology of stuff. So when we think of the word or the behavior called procrastination, it's an effect. And very few people look at procrastination as an effect of something. And there's only three causes, according to neuroscience, for procrastination to exist. So in about 1% of the population, it's actually an arousal mechanism in their brain. So there's a very small percentage of people that when they procrastinate, the dopamine release is so high oh. 
that they actually get neurologically, biologically aroused, and then they release it, which causes another rush of, uh, of dopamine because they actually do it. So that's very, very small. The second reason people procrastinate is due to self-image, self-worth, self-esteem. So if there's a project, a goal, a vision to become a coach, to write a book, to share our life with somebody, if we have a subconscious um, uh, image of ourselves that doesn't match the goal that we want to achieve, then we'll procrastinate because there's almost one part of us that wants to put the foot on the gas, another one on the brake and our hidden self-image will almost always win. Yeah. And then the third one, which is really tied to that number two, the self-image, is fear. So let's say I go ahead and do this thing. Let's say I invest in this thing uh, and I fail. Then what does that say about me? And how is that tied to my self-esteem? Or let's say you know I, I do this project and I hand it into my boss or to my partner and they don't like it and they embarrass me or they judge me or they shame me. So now we have all of these unconscious uh, patterns that are activating the breaks of our life uh, and that's what causes procrastination. So in either one of those three arenas, if you work on understanding which one or two are you or possibly three, uh, and then you focus on the cause that's triggering procrastination and you eliminate the cause procrastination goes away okay talk more about that how so how does it go away or how do you eliminate the cause yeah either so i get what you're saying so the um procrastination is the outcome it's right. almost the symptom of it's a symptom of it's the, the internal e neurology that's going on it's, it's the effect the cause is i think it's the cause is the self-esteem issue what we tell ourselves what we imagine could go wrong how we convince ourselves there's only downside so right. what seemed exciting suddenly starts becoming like a pinball machine of shall i shan't i shall i shan't i how do we come back to how do we address this that first bit sure. so it doesn't get to that so you know the um self-image let's talk about the self-image and so who would you have to believe you are in order not to procrastinate, mm -hmm. right? So who would you have to believe you are right now? And what would you have to believe in the event that you failed that wouldn't affect your self-esteem, mm -hmm. right? So as soon as we start to shift the questions that we ask ourselves, which you're a master of, you're like a master of the masters, mm -hmm. right? So as soon as we start to shift the perspective uh, and we stop to minimalize ourselves, or minimize, excuse me, minimize ourselves and who we are. And we create a healthy self-image and self-worth and self-esteem that matches the vision of the goal that we want. The resistance starts to go away. So can you use, you know, affirmations or declarations? Of course you can. Can you use... Uh, mental contrasting techniques to retrain your brain to say, okay, let me imagine myself with my current self-image or self-esteem. Okay. How does that feel? Yeah, I mean, it feels okay, but it doesn't feel great. You know, is it the self-image and self-worth and self-esteem that I need in order to achieve this vision goal for my life? The answer is no. Well, can I imagine in my mind going from this self-image to self-esteem and using a mental contrasting technique saying, this is the old me, this is the new me. Mm -hmm. 
And is it possible that if I did that, let's say a hundred times over the next 90 days, three times a day for one minute each, is it possible that the act of contrasting old me, new me, old me, new me, old me, new me a hundred times, is it possible that I would activate certain neural networks and patterns in my brain, specifically, you know, the nucleus accumbens and insula, which is gonna release dopamine as soon as I do that. And then if I share that with somebody else, you know, I'm gonna actually activate my oxytocin um, hormones in my brain. That's gonna make me feel really good. And is it possible that by doing that, I'm actually building a brand new neural network that overrides the old network? Possibly, um, that is actually how we do it. So no different than uh, a Hollywood or, or a, or a Bollywood or an Australian actress receives a new script and they say, hey, listen, learn this script. I'll pay a million dollars to take this role. What would you do to learn that script and become the script? You'd practice it, right? You'd read it. You'd, you'd look in front of the mirror. You'd have the script. You'd put it down. You'd practice and practice and practice so that you and the script became one. Well, what are the tools, techniques, and processes that you're using right now okay, to become the person that's capable of achieving her goals, his goals, etc.? And most people just have the goal, but they don't have the process by which they become that goal and create that unification between their head, their heart, and their gut, and their behaviors. How much do you think mental rehearsals played in what you've created? Listen, I have my Exceptional Life Blueprint right here on my desk. There's 43 pages on here of, of pictures, of prayers, of goals, of visions. I have it on my cell phone recorded. I listen to it every single day. I, I mentally rehearse it every single day. Now people ask me, like, why, why do you do it? You've already achieved so much success. Uh, it, well, it's because I achieved so much success that I want to keep doing it to, to, to maintain, you know, it's like if you get into really great shape physically, like as soon as you stop, what happens? You get out of shape. Well, why would I want to um, uh, take neuro muscles that are strong and weaken them? Why would I want to take processes that have helped me become the person that can achieve some goals? Why would I want to stop doing the things that work? One of the ways I look at it, John, is I picture a country road that's all grown over with grass and it's really, that's the analogy that really works for me. So what kind of mind do I want around whatever it is I'm looking to build a muscle, a mental muscle around? Do I want the country road that's all weed covered and barely rutted, muddy track? Or I want it to be a really smooth ride. And the only way I'm going to get a smooth ride is if I keep revisiting and revisiting, we keep driving there, we keep driving there. Eventually, it's going to become better for us to drive through there. That's really worked for me for years now, for well, nearly two decades. Just this mental rehearsal idea that if sometimes the dreams are really big, I get that, and they seem like a real stretch to me, but I don't have to be all of that today. I just need to mentally rehearse heading in that direction. That's what get because I don't have to be, I never would have dreamed 17 years ago this, but I could mental rehearse the next steps. And the more I rehearsed that, the more comfortable I got with it. And also the more real it became for me, the more possible it became for me. Because by then, my, and there's lots of, there's actually research for this. The basketball is visualizing 
practicing shooting the three-pointer versus actually rehearsing the three-pointer, their results on the game actually were about equal. So the visualization to me is just, I've got to picture the road for me, the road for me over and over again. And now it's so automatic. Any fear I have or thoughts of procrastination as I say this, I reflect on it, aren't needed. I don't need those crutches of putting it off or convincing myself I can do it later or I'm too busy, I'll do it when I. I don't need those mental crutches anymore because this landscape is rich enough to carry me forward. Yeah, and um, you know, the, the visual that you used is all based on the science of neuroplasticity, right? Our brain's ability to create new networks. And, um, you know, everybody knows, you know, what a new road is. You know, if you live in a city or even in the country and they build a new road, well, think of mental rehearsing as developing a new road. Yeah, nice. So a new road path. And the more you create it, the more you can add more neuroads to it and reinforce them. And, um, and so that's what the science of neuroplasticity is, that we're making new connections every day. The connections that we reinforce become part of something known as the default mode network. It becomes the new way of being, the automatic self, yeah. right? So right now, every one of us has the automatic self that we are. And that's the easiest path for our brain to take because we've traveled down that road before, often. And so if we want to achieve a, a, a greater or a different level of success, we have to change with the patterns that are in our, in our brain. And, and that's, you know, that's, uh, you, can, you know, you can ask questions to shift the perspective. You can behave differently. You can use mental contrasting, mindfulness, um, visualization, meditations, uh, affirmations, declarations, cognitive behavior therapy. There's a variety of different methods in which to do it. The key to understand is we will never outperform our own hidden self-image, ever. And, and if we do, uh, then the lottery effect comes in and we sabotage the success, right? One of the ways I've done it is to ensure I always have people around me who I aspire to become like or am inspired by. So in the beginning, I didn't have it within me to mentally rehearse, that seems like just a bridge too far, but I could see others had done it and created lives, just truly remarkable lives and just admired them so much. I thought, well, if they can, how are they doing it? So my mental rehearsal was not how can I do it, it's how are they doing it? And that's why I became so curious in the beginning and made sure I got around people. That's why I traveled to the States so much, John, just being around the people who were having these conversations every single day. It was nothing to them to talk about doing well and succeeding. It was an expectation, not a hopeful wish. They weren't self-sabotaging. How are they doing it? Until it became normal for me to ask that question for myself. So I kind of took a two-step path to get there until it was okay for me to feel that way about me. Well, you know, it's interesting. You, you, you said something that, that, that um, uh, I, re I remember having a dialogue with actually my second mentor and it's around you know mental rehearsal when you you can't like you know maybe close your eyes and mentally rehearse there um, but every time you're in the environment whether it's by you know a zoom call watching you and I uh, reading a book seeing somebody's success uh, watching somebody else succeed you're actually mentally rehearsing because the mirror neurons in your brain have actually activated 
And so when your mirror neurons are activating, seeing somebody achieve those successes as you talk about and you're in the environment, it is an actual mental rehearsal doing that because you are, whether it's you're aware of it or you're not secretly thinking, I want that result. It would be so great to have that lifestyle. It'd be so amazing to help that many people. And so whenever we are in that environment and we keep seeing it, it is a form of mental rehearsal via the activation of our motivational centers, the activation of our mirror neurons. And so anytime you can, you know, read, watch, listen, connect with, be in the environment of successful people that you aspire to um, have life's like, uh, do it. I mean, that, that is one of the tickets to success. I eliminated all uh, people in my life that are psychic and emotional or financial vampires. I just don't want them in my environment anymore because I know what, it's, what it was doing to my own brain many years ago, including somebody I loved very deeply as a family member. <laughs> There's a level of moving out of automatic into conscious that I'm hearing about. And if there's anything that I put down my trajectory in my life to, it's trying to become self-aware. I was talking about this with JP this morning on our morning walk. The people I want to be around are striving for self-awareness. They're striving to know themselves, not to voice to themselves, make themselves look perfect, none of that, but just to be in touch with who they are and who they want to become. That to me is almost the most important conversation we can have as human beings. Are we in the environment and are we nurturing an environment in here that is going to enable us to know ourselves and to know who we want to become, the best version of ourselves we can become? Yeah, um, I wrote down DCE, um, uh, something I've been giving a lot of thought to over the last number of years. Um, so thought number one was awareness gives us choice, choice is what gives us freedom. Yeah. So that's number one. And DCE is deliberate conscious evolution. So we're in the, in the, in the place right now where you know, we, we have learned more about the human brain in the last you know, 10, 20 years than we've known in, in 5 million years of humans evolving on planet Earth. And you know, 108 billion humans have walked on, on Earth since the beginning of time. And we're finally at the point where we're getting enough information that you know, we have this thing called brain. And we can actually deliberately manipulate it to evolve faster than normal. And we're just, we're just entering that era right now. And as soon as we get into um, deeper levels of augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality, hologram uh, technology that's coming down the pike, uh, we are going to experience a massive deliberate shift uh, that we can direct and control better than ever before. And for the time being, there's still stuff that we can do to become more aware, to be mindful, to be at choice versus, you know, being a victim of. And, and that's really what gives you the freedom is to know that I can choose my thoughts. I can shift my emotions or feelings on demand if I learn to, and I can act or not act based on my deliberate choices because that's what I want to do versus being an automatic robot you know, behaving in ways today that I did yesterday or last week or the week before, being a victim of my patterns. One of the things I notice a lot with uh, people who join us, John, is how proud they feel. They didn't just break away from any negative thoughts they had had, but a lot of them share how important it was to break away from the tribe around them, 
telling them they can't, they shouldn't, or it scares them. There is, I don't know if the numbers have gone up, it feels like it has. People worrying about approval from others instead of seeking support from others. Well, it comes from insecurity. It comes back to that self-image piece, mm -hmm. right? If you think about it, from the time we are born, right? We have our parents, then we have our teachers, then we have boyfriends, girlfriends, uh, you know, then we may have a job and, and a boss, you know, that we like. And then, and then where are we getting that approval and that do this, don't do that, you know? Mm -hmm. Most people, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stretch here right now, and I'm going to say most people, meaning the majority of people in the world, don't have a healthy environment um, to grow in. Uh, it's, a, it's an environment of scarcity, of I can't, of fear-based decision-making. And I can understand, you know, parents of ours that, you know, grew up in World War II, grandparents of World War I, uh, scarcity, security, uh, lack, not abundance, so if, you, if, if we think about, you know, it's like one or two generations um, uh, to all of a sudden go from scarcity and security is the important part to, but there's an abundance, uh, but that's not the environment I grew up in. We know environment affects our, uh, our conditioning, our perspective, our expectations, our behaviors. And even though we can logically, you know, hear this and go, yeah, that's right. If we are wired, okay, uh, at the unconscious or subconscious levels to have a scarcity mindset or a protective mindset or a fear-based mindset as the core of how we operate, then that's going to win out over logic and over information. Information doesn't make people change. Yeah. That's fascinating to me because I love getting data. I love getting facts. I know you do as well. How do we help someone who's, Recognizing this pattern in themselves and recognizing, okay, so I actually do need to change something. I am too reliant on what other people think, or I am too reliant on old patterns that aren't helping. There has to be a mechanism where we can help someone jump into, it's possible for you, because there's no way anyone's the exception, John. And I hear this a lot. I, I think it's not going to work for me. And they're about to put in their excuses to why they're exception. No one is the exception. We can all have this working for us. Now, the names and faces change, the story stays the same. One of the things that I always like to, um, th there's two things that, that you just percolated from, from my mind. One is a story, and I'll start with that. And, uh, and then the other is around, you know, uh, the time that we're living in, you know, 2020, 2021 timeframe. Uh, so the story. Uh, when I was 19 years old, I was uh, getting into a lot of trouble with the law. I left high school at grade 11. Uh, I didn't think I was smart enough, didn't think I was good enough. My grades proved me to be right and the teachers to be right. And so I left and I was actually uh, in the top 99 or the top 1% of my class that actually made the other 99% possible. So I was, <laughs> I, I was like a winner back then, right? There's a, there's a good reframe for you. Yeah. Um, I didn't do well in school. And so my brother, uh, because I was getting in trouble with the law, doing breaking and entries and selling drugs and doing drugs as a teen, um, my brother introduced me to this man by the name of Alan Brown, who's a very successful uh, real estate developer, had real estate offices, happily married, children, just like it looked like just a perfect life. And he was kind and gentle and healthy. And uh, it just looked really good. And the truth is it was. And the first day that I met him, I took the train 
from Montreal, Canada to Toronto, Canada, 350 miles, 500 kilometers. And I went, I took the train just to meet this man for lunch because my brother said, maybe he can help you and maybe he can shed some light on you. So I, I sat down at lunch with him and um, he, he asked me about my vision and my goals for my life. And I was 19, okay, 19 years old. I said, uh, my goals, um, uh, I want to get a job. Uh, I want to uh, get my own apartment, move out of my parents' house. I'd love to buy my own car. And he goes, yeah, oh, okay, uh, basic, easy, what are your other goals? And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, what else do you want to achieve? And I, I, I don't know, I never thought about it. So he gave me this document uh, and it was uh, probably eight pages. And just to, to put into perspective, right, I was 19, it was May of 1980. And on this document, the first question, Sharon, was at what age do you want to retire? Oh, wow. I love that question. <laughs> I'm 19. Retired. I'd like to get a job. I'm retire. Next question. How much net worth do you want? I looked at him. I said, Mr. Brown, um, he's asking me what age I want to retire. Uh, I just, I, I just want to get out of the gate and start the game. And he yeah. says, just, just write down something. Oh, wow. And I said, over here it says, uh, how much net worth do you want to have? I asked him, what's net worth? <laughs> What's, what's net worth? And he chuckled too. And he says, well, he explained to me what net worth was. This, said, what kind of lifestyle do you have? And what do you want to do? And so I wrote down, I want to retire at age 45. Uh, I want a net worth of $3 million. I might as well have written 3 billion because 3 million, my father made $25,000 a year. We, we know nobody that we knew was a millionaire, let alone have $3 million in net worth. Um, I want to travel the world. You know, I want a Mercedes Benz. I want a nice house. I want to retire my parents. I wrote down all this stuff. And he read it. He said, this is actually a pretty good vision, some good goals. And he said, where'd you get that? I said, well, it's a TV show that I like called Lifestyle of the Rich and Famous. And they seem like they're rich and they have a lifestyle. I'd love to live that kind of a lifestyle. And he says to me, he said, he said, John, he said, you seem like a nice enough young guy. And yeah, you're getting in trouble. And yeah, there's some language and, and self-image issues that I can pick up on quite, quite fast. He said, but I'm going to ask you one question. And the answer to that question will determine whether you achieve every one of those things on this sheet of paper, on these sheets of paper. And in the back of my mind, I'm going, <laughs> one question? This guy's on drugs. Like one question is going to determine whether I achieve these or not. So he says to me, he says, uh, are you interested in achieving these goals or are you committed? I said, what? He says, are you interested or are you committed? And I said to him, I said, uh, well, what's the difference? He says, listen, if you're interested, you're gonna do what's easy and convenient. If you're interested, you're gonna allow your old stories to control you. If you're interested, you're gonna keep thinking you're not smart enough and not good enough and not worthy enough to achieve your goals. If you're interested, you're gonna allow your limiting beliefs about what's possible to hold you back. If you're interested, you're gonna do everything but what you need to do to be committed. And if you're gonna be committed, you're gonna to have to upgrade your knowledge and your skills. You're gonna to have to create beliefs that match the vision and goals you wanna have. You're gonna to have to create habits to achieve those goals. You're gonna to have to upgrade your knowledge and skills and you're gonna to have to have an attitude, I'll do whatever it takes, that's honest and legal instead of the attitude you have right now of dishonest and illegal. So are you interested or are you committed? And I remember Sharon, this was 40 years ago, literally 40 years ago, I remember you know, feeling this excitement and fear at the same time. And I just yelled, well, I I'm committed. 
And he put his hand out. He says, in that case, I'll mentor you. And I said, great. Uh, what's a mentor? <laughs> true story. True, true story. And he says, well, a mentor is when somebody knows what to do and how to do it and why to do it and when to do it. And they share that with the person wanting to do it and wanting to achieve the results. They shortcut their path. They save them a lot of time, money, heartache, and headache, and they give them a clearer path that's effortless, not effortless, but effortless and stressless than normal. So that's what a mentor is. And I shook his hand, and that was the beginning of my career as number one, a real estate agent, then somebody who built, you know, a 85 office, 1200 person real estate company over the next 10 years, um, doing four and a half billion dollars a year in sales. One question, one answer, one lunch, one decision. I love it. And I also believe what you did, you did a little bit more than that. You took action in that moment. You said you were committed and then you did something about it. It's because words can be cheap, John. Yeah, 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 I'm committed. What yeah. are you doing about it? That moment, you allowed it to infuse you and you made a new decision. Yeah, the other part of that story is he said, great, well, the first thing I need you to do is move from Toronto to Montreal. And I said, what? How am I going to move from Montreal to Toronto? I don't have a car. I don't have a job. I don't have any money. He says, there you go. You're already giving me excuses. I said, I, I, I know, but these are, these are real. This is true. And he says, I don't care if it's really true. Are you interested? Are you committed? I said, Mr. Brown. I said, I don't know anybody here other than you and my brother. I, I don't have a job. I have $40 in the bank. He says, I, I don't care. Make the decision first. Figure out the how next. He says, there's your first lesson. So I said, fine. I'll, I was actually a little angry. I said, fine, I'll, I'll move to Toronto. In the back of my mind, I'm going, my parents are going to think I'm nuts. They, they think I'm, I'm getting into trouble again and I'm just doing something illegal again. He says, the next thing I need you to do, and this is a, these are the exact dates. He says, on May the 5th, there's a real estate class that's starting. I want you in that class. You're going to go to school for five weeks, pass the test. You can come work for me at my real estate company. I said, you want me to come and take, go to real estate school? I fucking hate school, I told him. <laughs> I said, I'm not very smart. I hate school. I failed English. I failed math. The teachers had a party when I left. Um, and he says, and it costs $400 in order to, um, uh, $500 in order to enroll in the class. I said, 500 bucks, I got 40 bucks in the bank. You want me to go to school? You want me to pay money that I don't have? He goes, there you go again. He caught me twice in less than 10 minutes, coming up with stories and excuses and reasons why I couldn't. And um, he kept going back. Are you interested or are you committed? Are you interested or are you committed? I said, fine, fine, fine. I'll figure it out. My brother said, Mark, Johnny, I'll, I'll lend you 100 bucks. Maybe Rifka, my sister, could lend me money. Maybe dad and mom could lend me some money. Long story short, got the money, moved to Toronto, took the course, May 5th, 1980, passed the class, June 19th, 1980. On June 20th, I got my real estate certificate. And Sharon, if you want to know why I know those dates so well, it was the first test I had actually learned the material, studied and passed without cheating. Wow. Oh. In many years. Yeah. So the power of commitment, the power of a decision, the mentor, having the right mentor who really cares and um, you know, having a path to follow, which leads me to the second thing that I wanted to share about 2020 and 2021. I want you know, anybody who's listening or watching to answer this question. And other than 
colonizing Mars. Other than colonizing Mars, okay, do we know pretty much how to anything you can think of that you want to achieve? Do we know how to? How to start a business and make it successful? How to become a coach and become successful? How to lose weight and keep it off? How to have a great relationship and sustain it? How to write a book successfully and make it a best? Do we know the how to just about every goal that any one of us can think about? If the answer is yes, that means the blueprint exists. And if the blueprint exists, the how-to is not your problem, the commitment is. So if you are committed to a solution, a different life, a better life, uh, then the answer of how-to already exists. The fact that you may not know it is irrelevant to the equation. If you're committed to an outcome, the how-to is already here. You just need to make a decision that you want to and are committed to. That's Those so are my thoughts. It's very, very powerful. There's uh, there's someone who's hearing this and they're going to be on the precipice saying, I really want to commit and what do you say to that person who's going the but or the end and they just want to keep talking after that like you didn't say. It's like there comes a point where you hear the message enough, it just becomes upon you to seize your life for you. There's yeah. Seizing an excuse, seizing a story versus seizing the life you want to have, they are two different conversations. Right. Many years ago, Sharon, when you were here in the United States on my Brainathon, you shared a story that I absolutely loved and have remembered. And, and, and many people that listened to you on my Brainathon, you know, said that oh, that story was great. You, you talked about that little voice, almost like a little person on your shoulder. Okay. You remember that? It's amazing how many people allow that little voice, the little them, to hold them hostage not realizing it's time to tell that little person, thank you for serving me in the past, but now you can leave. I'm gonna step into the bigger version of myself and I'm gonna figure a way to make it happen and to fulfill my potential, to stop standing on the edge of my potential. Uh, enough of the little voice controlling my life. Enough of the, I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not worthy. Enough of, I can't figure this out. I'm, I don't know how to do this. I don't have enough money. That's all the negative, disempowering, discouraging self-talk and behaviors that keep you stuck in the rut or in the same results that you have over and over and over again. And so I'm going to go back to which part of you is going to control your life. You know, the old insecure part, trying to keep you safe and comfortable and miserable? Or are you going to knock that off and, you know, master change instead of master disappointment? Which one? One of the best things I ever did for myself, John, and I know I've shared this with you before, is the greatest... Your, your mic is a little bit low, just so you know. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, just, just wanted to let you know for your recording. Thank you. Yeah, it, they tested it earlier. Thank you. Okay. One, one of the things that really changed my life was realizing that little voice that gremlin wasn't me it was what i trained it to become i trained my gremlin to say to me what it said to me i'd encouraged it nurtured it welcomed it paid attention to it for hours at a time i think a record before i realized that gremlin had hold of my brain was two hours john two hours before i interrupted like, what are you doing I grew my gremlin into the monster it became on my shoulder. That was me. It, it isn't like that in the beginning. We nurture that little fella. 
to become the out of control monster it becomes. The gremlin's the perfect metaphor. And the moment I realized that was the gift because I realized if I'd been feeding and nurturing and growing in it, then I could stop doing it. I could start nurturing something else. That's right. That was when everything changed for me. Yep, that's exactly right. And and so you asked the question is for anybody who's stuck in that dialogue right now, I can't because it's not the right time because I can't afford it because I'm too young, I'm too old, I'm too white, I'm too, whatever that voice is, um, we're gonna come back to awareness is what's gonna give you the choice to so become aware of how long, how many times, how many years have you been feeding that little voice, that gremlin, and creating a monster, okay, that um, is controlling your life right now. And, you know, there's a, there's a, a joke that I'm sure you've heard as well, um, and that is, do you, know, do you know when the best time to kill a monster is? No. When, it, when it's a baby. <laughs> right, so a lot of us, you know, uh, you know, to a certain point have allowed the monster to get so big that the monster now controls our lives uh, as opposed to saying, okay, now I can, I, I'm, I'm going to put this monster to bed. I'm going to put a little noose around the monster. I'm going to tie the monster over there and tell that monster to be quiet as I develop this healthy new voice that's going to encourage me, empower me, uh, and, and construct a new version of I learned to become a coach, John, to learn how to manage that voice. That was my only goal. I didn't have huge aspirations all those years ago. It really was, if I could just learn how to master my mind, that would be the game changer for me. If I could learn to master my thoughts and think consciously about where I want to take my life, pretty well every other problem I've got suddenly has perspective because I realized all my problems were coming from me listening to this gremlin and acting on it. I had problems around how fearful I was, how unwell I was how I was too scared to leave my house. I didn't create any wealth. I didn't create any value. I had endless problems, John, but it all came back to me sowing the seeds of feeding this gremlin. As long as I listened to the gremlin, I was gonna make decisions from fear, from self-sabotage and from procrastination because it's the only voice I allowed myself to pay attention to. Yet there were all these amazing, remarkable voices around me at the exact same time. Yet I somehow managed to tune them all out as I paid homage to this voice that I created in my own mind. Then when I realized if I could learn to master this, manage it, I don't mind if it's still there sometimes, sometimes keeping me safe from danger, like a freeway is a really good thing. But if it only knows when to be turned on when it's actually required for physical safety, my life's gonna be a lot healthier. So evolution be damned, I spent the next 12 months managing this until it worked for me. Yeah, so for those of, uh, those of your friends and audience that are watching us right now, they see behind me an Einstein image yep. and a Frankenstein's monster image. <laughs> that represents to me, you know, the possibility of our imagination and all the goodness and constructiveness that we can create. And that represents the fear center, the why I can't, the I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, you know, activated part of our brain. And the thing to, to understand, and this is, this is really a, like a game changer break for me, is when I realized both of those reside in me. And there's nothing wrong with either one of them, but the one that I feed is the one that grows. So do I want to feed my imagination and possibilities and probabilities by feeding the Einstein part of my brain 
or do I want to feed the Frankenstein part of my brain that's filled with fear and uncertainty and doubt and self-deprecating talk? And both of those exist. Now I need to learn to manage and then master. And that, that, that's what the whole book, The Inner Size, or Inner Size is all about, is understanding that these are parts of our brain that makes us human, and it's parts of our brain that we can learn to manage and then master better. And we're not the exceptions, John. Everybody's got both. Just you might pay attention to the Frankenstein a little too much. So you might think, oh, but I didn't have the Einstein voice in me. We all do. We just haven't nurtured it yet. It's about nurturing it. Yeah. So how's your family doing these times? Um, How are you doing? Well, um, in, in May of this year, my, my mother was diagnosed with COVID on May the 2nd. And unfortunately, she died May the 8th. Yeah. Um, at 87, she was, uh, you know, exercising every day, eating on her own, living in her, you know, own apartment uh, with help. And, and then, you know, six days later, uh, mm-hmm. it was her time. And so the universal intelligence said, okay, you know, this chapter is over. So that was a very, very sad time. And I was in a lot of grief and gratitude at the same time. And the grief was from not being able to fly and to be with her, uh, not being able to say goodbye, uh, you know, face to face with my mother and say goodbye on my mobile phone, you know, in her hospital bed, um, not being able to go to a funeral and actually watching Paul Bears, you know, take my mother's grave. My sister was there, my nephew was there, my brother-in-law was there. Uh, and on, you know, on our Zoom camera, um, we were able to see my mother's burial, uh, not being able to be there, very, very, very challenging. Uh, as, as you know, and um, that was very, very difficult. Very, very, I come from a very close family. I spoke to my mother every day, wow. you know, for the last 40 years, no matter where it was in the world. Nice. And all of a sudden to have to say goodbye to her and she's passed on in six days. Uh, that was challenging. And at the same time, uh, she didn't suffer. She didn't, it wasn't prolonged. She didn't um, yeah, she wasn't in any pain or suffering. So at 87, she lived a good life. Uh, we made it as comfortable as possible for her. So that was really challenging. And, um, and um, my mother-in-law lives with us now, so we're really careful, you know, around COVID. And we've been pretty quarantined for many, many, many months. And we go out a little bit. We've done one road trip by car for a three-week trip. Um, yeah. that, that was great. And so we've been very, very careful and uh, very respectful of this virus uh, and what it can do. And, um, and you know, I've been doing my work from, you know, my, my home office. And, and so the good news is people have been at home. And so we can, we can help a lot more people now with the business that you're in and that I'm in, in the personal development industry, helping people with the, their mindset, their emotions, their, you know, what they do. Uh, and so business has been great. Uh, my own health has been superb. My wife's been superb. My kids are great. And uh, so, you know, knock, knock, knock on a bit of wood for, you know, some of that stuff. So some, some interesting polarities this year of, uh, of emotions and uh, uh, still feel grateful and blessed. Every morning I wake up, I get another day above ground. Yeah, exactly. My, as you know, my dad passed away two weeks ago. And we're in a situation in Australia where I can't go over there and be with them without spending two weeks in a little hotel room, the guard, no fresh air, 
So dealing with losing my father and then told I've got to be alone for two weeks just after it happened, it, it didn't add up to be there. It just didn't add up. So I stayed here and we had a lovely kind of service on the FaceTime. So yeah. my family who are in Perth, I'm in Melbourne, they were on FaceTime and we spent an hour together when we knew who was being cremated and we got to spend that time together there. So we created as much connection and togetherness as we possibly could. And I was really fortunate. I'd spoken to him. Father's Day was three days before he passed away. So I got to have a great chat with him because it was actually really good three days before. And then when he passed away, it was very quick as well. So there was, he was there one minute and they walked in the next and he was gone. So I was very grateful about that. And I certainly, I felt really complete as well. I was talking to my mom about this, I think yesterday. I felt really complete that I felt I'd done what I could and loved him as I could and given him the best as I could when he needed so much care. Yeah. So I felt very complete around that. So it was, there was nothing, there's no regret I was holding on to. There was nothing I was holding on to afterwards. It was just, the, it was a really beautiful release. A yeah. Huge sadness that I couldn't be with my family during that time. But also we did everything we could to create togetherness in the way that we could with what we had. And we have beautiful tools to do that today. To FaceTime in and Zoom in, it's yeah. phenomenal. Yeah, there's um, a guy here in the United States by the name of Dr. Ken Druck, and he wrote a book a year or two ago called The Real Rules of Life. And um, uh, Ken is a psychologist, a well-known psychologist. And, uh, you know, he says, you know, part of the, the, the book, obviously, is, uh, you know, we have this idea of what life's going to be like, right? We're going to have kids. Our kids yeah. are, you know, going to do X, Y, or Z. And we're going to get married. We're going to do X, Y, or Z. And then we're going to live to old, old age. And our kids will take care whatever the, the, the idea that we have. You know, and then all of a sudden something like this happens and, you know, that's not the way it's supposed to happen. And that's the real rule of life is we have these ideas and concepts of here's the way it's supposed to be, you know, and then this happens. And, um, and so you and I have experienced something very similar on opposite parts of the world uh, around losing a parent, not really being able to be there and having to adapt uh, and modify and accept and surrender and allow and, and, and not have anger or resentment uh, around it and to find the good in it, right? To find whatever we can make sense of it. And that's something that, you know, as I call um, learning how to be an adaptationist, which I believe is one of the greatest skills we could be uh, exploring ourselves, teaching each other how to become better adaptationists. My hallucination is... Uh, there's going to be a lot of change happening in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And unless we realize that some of the rules that we're living under um, are, are not factual, <laughs> they're uh, our idea of how things should be and how things, we like things to be, there is so much unrest, a variety of different facets of our world right now that we have to be prepared to adapt. And um, we love certainty, John. We, are, we love certainty. The human yeah. race seems to be just geared for things to be a certain way and to be able to count on it. We're, I have not, how, how are you seeing us being good at this adaptation? I see it in some, but I see a lot of people just saying, I'm waiting for things to get back to normal. And I just keep saying, as you know, this is normal. This yeah. is good. 
Well, it, it goes back to, um, you know, we prefer to master disappointment than we will um, uh, do to master change. And mastering change and adapting right now is one of the greatest skills that you have to learn. Yeah. And um, my, my, you know, my belief is that we're on the precipice of some major, major shifts. Okay, how's um, let's, let's just talk about something that's you know, neutral for most people as far as I agree or don't agree. Like just look at climate, climate change, okay? You, you know, you're down under, just look at what's happened you know, this year down under with your fires. Look at what's happening on the West Coast of the United States with our fires. Look what's happening in the polar ice caps where, you know, chunks of ice bigger than some cities, you know, are uh, dislodged from the Arctic shelf. Uh, and, um, and so um, we're, we're seeing uh, the beginnings of some massive change um, that uh, we haven't seen in years, you know, in, in certain parts of the world, you know, it's higher than it's ever been. Uh, you know, so that's that. Our political landscape and unrest around the world, in in a variety of different pockets, is uh, is uh, really really serious stuff. And uh, like you know, in in the United States, this is the first time I could ever understand uh, civil war. Yeah. I live in the U.S. I, I don't vote in the U.S. I'm Canadian, uh, but the division of uh, and the polarity is so great right now between the political um, uh, institutions that we have, the Democrats and the Republicans. And I'm not going to get into who I believe or like. It's irrelevant. But I can see how, you know, a brother would kill another brother. And, 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 and one person who believes this uh, and another person who believes that would actually, you know, take up arms against them. It's happening. Uh, in greater amounts. There's also uh, less and less trust in institutions. That's and right. We can't believe in institutions to maintain stability in the status quo. We then have to find what we can latch onto to give us stability in status quo. So we're siloing out as we cling onto what we think will get us through. And that's yes. causing tribalism. It's yes. really, it's happening here to a lesser extent. It's definitely happening here. And yeah. speaking across the aisle never seemed to have been so difficult. <laughs> yeah, and it's happening in, in Canada. It's happening in the United States. It's happening in Europe. Um, and uh, people that have been silent for years and years and years are getting voices now, um, you know, in, in certain areas. So there's just a lot of change happening and there's a lot of disruption happening. And you, met, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, we love certainty and predictability. And then the absence of certainty and predictability, which our brain is looking for all the time, we're going to try and create the predictability we want around our own values and beliefs and ideologies. And so we're seeing more of a division than ever before versus unification. I wonder how, uh, I wonder how capable we are of becoming aware of the fact that we're convincing ourselves of our own ideology through the style effect of social media and the style effect of who we get exposed to. Surely we have the ability to step back and say, I'm a self-fulfilling machine. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, that's all I am. I'm a self-fulfilling machine. I will seek and I will find that which I believe I should seek and I should find. And the more I seek and the more I find it, the more it becomes true to me until it becomes, I'm indoctrinated in it. If we don't start recognizing that, this divide gets, the gap gets bigger rather than being a nice gray area where we can navigate and negotiate and compromise. Yeah, so have you seen the Netflix um, movie right now that's like just 
storming the airways right now, the social dilemma? No. Should I? Must watch. Not should watch. Everybody who's here right now, I don't care what you believe, um, if you understood, I mean, we all know some of this, but but, um, some of the leaders within some of the biggest social media companies that have defected from there uh, have given us an insight into the... um, methodologies that all the social media companies and even news outlets are using now, using artificial intelligence um, uh, to uh, reinforce our current beliefs already. So for example, let's say I click, you know, a political party that I like, all right? Uh, it start, the, the social media companies are gathering all this information on what I like, and they basically take out any other news information that doesn't match what I've already clicked that I like. So all I'm seeing is a reinforcement of my ideologies and beliefs. Um, And so they have got so much information on us and everything that they do is geared towards having us become addicts to stay on our cell phones, mobile mobile applications, computers, iPads, whatever the case is, feeding us what we want uh, and then taking out all the stuff that's going to cause us to maybe leave. If you see how they do it and how it's all neuroscience and neuropsychology based, you, you just don't want to be on social media anymore. Um, knowing how much of the misinformation is being given to all of us. Uh, it's just mind boggling. It's also the must watch movie. It's also the news outlets now. All of them. They're but not news. Has become more and more ideological, and the and journalism has become more editorialized and less fact reporting and more personal experience reporting or personal view reporting. So you'll have an editorial briefed all the way through an article that has a political slant. Well, if I read that paper, and that's the only paper I read, I'm going to get editorialized when I think I'm reading what's called news. So I'm constantly, my thoughts are constantly being managed and curated. Constantly. It can't help me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, it's really, it's, it's, it's scary. Uh, it, it is so scary when you, when you really understand what's been happening and why these companies are worth the billions that they are. Yeah. One of the ways I try to manage it is, like, as you know, I don't do social media. Um, except for my community. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a password. My team gives me the password. I go in, I comment, I check out what's going on with their community, and then I get the password taken off me. It's just best for my mental health. <laughs> yeah, it's the way I manage it. Then the other thing I do is I try and pick where I'm going to get my information from. And that's one of the challenges I'm finding. So I'm tending to go back to source data a lot more rather than how it's being processed. It's a bit like um, how you make a sausage. You don't ever want to see how a sausage is made. Because I don't, want to, I don't want it to be processed by the time it gets to me and shaped into something else. So I'm trying to get the raw data on, for example, during COVID-19, what's the raw data on the truth of things like death rates or things like infection rates? And how does that compare to previous pandemics? Rather than it being interpreted through a series of spokespeople who are representing their viewpoint. And that's the way I'm keeping my sanity through this, John. Yeah, the... Um misinformation is so deep it's mind-boggling because you can have a you know a phd write this article with all of this information and if you don't know the piece that's missing it sounds great 
Um, I have a friend of mine who lives down the street who is a, uh, a research of the research. And I send him these articles that I think are, oh my God, this is so good. Look at this graph, look at this bar chart, look at this retail. And he goes, that's bullshit. He goes, can't be true. I said, how am I supposed to know? I think I'm pretty smart, but how am I supposed to know that this, this doctor from this university with these credentials, with all of this, he goes, yeah, but just because he's saying that doesn't mean it's true. What about this and this and this and this that negates that? I'm like, listen, I'd have to spend four or five hours a day then trying exactly. to figure out. And yeah. he goes, that's actually what he does. He says he's spending about six to seven hours a day doing the research on the research. And it's crazy. I just find blind trust isn't working anymore. Whereas I, when I was younger and I didn't know any better, I was okay with blind trust, John. I, I was all good. I could just trust the institutions would take care of it and me. And I don't well, have that anymore. Well, there's blind trust, but then, you know, you and I have talked about this in the past is, um, our brain wants to conserve energy and we are cognitively lazy. It's easier to take this road, this path versus dig in, use up energy to, 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 and, and, and people are exhausted. Yeah. People are exhausted on this topic of mask, no mask, quarantine, don't quarantine. Is it three days, seven days, five days? Airplanes are fine, but not this length of flight. This length of flying is okay if there's nobody in the middle seat and there's three seats over behind you, but that's on Sundays and Tuesdays only. And then if it's at nighttime, then this is the rule. In the morning time, it's this is the rule. And oh, by the way, tomorrow all this will change. Stay tuned. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what? I'm exhausted going to get my groceries. The amount of level of consciousness I've got to bring to grocery shopping now yeah. I'm exhausted trying to think it through, let alone everything else I'm trying to think about as well. Yeah. One of the yeah. ways I'm taking care of myself through this is I've developed a really clear purpose for during this time. Firstly, I had very um, realistic expectations. I've planned for two years that this is going to be like this for two years. So if I plan for a two-year horizon versus the desire to wish it done, I'm going to be mentally more prepared for the longer term. I assume you're doing the same thing. You just assume it's two to three years. Um, my sister asked me the question today and yeah. I said, just be prepared until the end of 2021 yeah. as your, as your earliest window for any sense of, yeah. um, uh, things being somewhat like they were before. Uh, but be prepared that, you know, this virus is, is here, uh, it's here to stay and we will get some kind of, um, you know, a vaccine against it. If you want to get vaccinated, if you don't, uh, then get yourself healthy right now. Yeah. Exactly. The other thing I've done is got a really clear, my husband and I sat down, we've got a really clear purpose for during this time because nice. the rules change. So our, we had to adapt. So our purpose has changed and what we want to achieve from this is realigned. And we spend a lot, we spend every week, we do two or three hours discussing on a Sunday. How's yeah. our purpose going? Yeah. How are we going? Are we putting the right energy into the stuff that we care about? Where can we adapt? And we, every week we make new decisions based on it. We're being as proactive as we possibly can be during this time to give ourselves the best mental and emotional health we can during this time. Because the, the times are inevitable. We can't get rid of the virus. We can't get rid of how people are reacting to it. And we can't change government responses to it. But what we can manage is how we navigate ourselves through it. What are some of the things you and Maria are doing? Um, health, 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 health. So yeah. we, you know, we're, we're exercising... Uh, every day we are eating, you know, perfectly. We are actually getting a lot of sleep. We've been working on just uh, making sure that our immune systems are just topped off. We've had 
uh, blood tests done. We've, we've checked on all of the vitals. And, uh, and first and foremost is, is our spiritual, emotional, mental, and physical health. So that's the SEMP model that we follow. Wonderful. Uh, uh, Maria doesn't meditate every day. I do. So I'm doing everything possible to make sure that my body has got a high immune system um, that is working really, really well. So that's, that's part one. Um, part two, I'm limiting the amount of news that I'm watching. When this, all, when this first started, I was probably consuming three to four hours a day of trying to figure out what was going on. Something you mentioned earlier that I made a note of to, to make sure I come back to is none of us are watching news. Uh, yeah. We're watching opinions, yeah. right? And so we were confusing news with opinions because by the time we're getting it, they've already you know, analyze what they think it means and who's right and who's wrong and what's works and what doesn't. And we're, we're not getting an unfiltered news. Uh, we're getting a very, very filtered news. And so there's several people, you know, that I can rely on that are impartial to this or that and are really, really great on the science as it relates to COVID, for example. So I'm getting my source from my neighbor down the street who spends seven hours a day researching the research and, and really understand what's happening in Europe and in Asia and in the United States uh, and in Australia and in the Middle East and, and is able to coalesce the best information into a cohesive thing to think about. And so, I mean, he sends me, he sends me things almost every day until I had to tell him, okay, you know what, once a week now you can give me an update. <laughs> I need the digest version. I don't need the full encyclopedia. <laughs> he was telling me, you know, watch this video for an hour. This guy's great or this girl's great. <laughs> yeah. Not see a bunch of bullshit and watch. No, I don't want. No, I don't want to see. I don't have any time for the bullshit. Yeah, I don't want the blow by blow. Give me the summation, and I don't yeah. want the sausage. I want the summation before I went through the sausage mill. Yeah, yeah. Just, just give me the tanned version. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and mentally, what are you? What are you guys doing? Um, we have been, uh, as I mean, we just went on a three-week road trip and, um, you know, we stayed in, um, in Airbnbs or at our home in Colorado. Um, and then um, we just went away for a weekend to a very, very quiet little resort with, uh, um, you know, only 12 guests at, at the resort, everybody, you know, far apart yeah. away. Um, you know, so we we're planning little trips to get away from our home. Uh, I don't know whether it's fortunate or unfortunate for me. My, my wife, Maria, had three major surgeries last year. So we were home for a whole year already. Yeah. Uh, I closed my, my office. I moved into a home office so I can be here to, to help support her. She had the two back surgeries and the femoral artery surgery, major ones. Uh, and so we were already home. And fortunately, we actually... Um, fell deeper into love. We happen to like each other a lot and we love each other a lot. And so we fell deeper into love. And, um, and so we've been watching a lot of movies together and reading next to each other and talking and, um, and sharing our thoughts and opinions on it and just expressing. Uh, but what I can also share with you, this is actually uh, not a common thing. Um, we have actually, <laughs> this may not sound great, but we've actually deliberately chosen to stay away from certain friends mm. and they're you know there's some of some of our friends um that may not be as happily married shall we say 
uh, are, uh, just become uh, psychic vampires. And, uh, and some of the beliefs that they have, whether it's they're misinformed about the coronavirus or they're just not happy together and being together in a closed environment has exacerbated their disdain for each other. Uh, we have just said, okay, uh, we have to put certain people and couples, you know, at bay because they're just toxic to, uh, you know, to the environment that we want to make sure is really healthy right now. So we've deliberately, um, you know, just decided in some of our dialogues is, you know, we're not going to get together people. And then we just started going to, um, uh, here we can, you know, we, we can go out and have masks on. And so we've just started either inviting friends over for dinners outside or, um, you know, go to their house outside or restaurants outside yeah. where there aren't a lot of people. So we have a little bit of latitude right now, yeah. whereas before we, we didn't have any at all. No, Melbourne still doesn't have any at the time of this recording. Yeah, we, we can't go out at all. John, is there anything else you want to share? I'm mindful that we've been going for a fair while. I could actually keep, what, what's the time? I thought, no, I could just keep going. <laughs> you can share. Well, listen, uh, the stuff that's, that's important is like, you know, I talked to my, to my sons. I've got two boys of 25 and 23. And I said, listen, guys, uh, yeah, times are challenging and they're tough. Um, and this too shall pass. Yeah. yeah. This too shall pass. We'll figure a resilient species. Yeah. And um, this is our time to surrender, allow, you know, forgive, uh, accept, uh, and take the time to become more, take the time to become more aware. You know, more, uh, you know, more at peace with yourself, healthier, uh, more focused, um, and, um, and, and this too shall pass. You know, th- th- it, there's a, um, do you remember Jim Rohn, you yeah. know, the philosopher? He, he said, he says, um, one of the things you learn about squirrels is, you know, um, in, in summer they plan for winter, <laughs> right? So they're collecting as many nuts as they can in the summertime because they know winter is coming. So they're planning you know, season or two ahead. And so what can you do during this time that maybe you didn't have the chance to do when you were so busy, 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 going, 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 going. And now you're not, you know, you have a few hours extra a day. Uh, What are you doing to become better? What are you doing to become more loving, caring, kind, peaceful, mindful, aware? What are you doing to advance the stuff that you didn't have time to before? Yeah. Right? So do it now. Yeah. Do it now. Yeah. or, 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 or you're going to come up with excuses again now, and then, <laughs> right? So don't, don't, don't keep feeding that little voice, okay, that is going to become into the monster of I should have, I could have, I would have. Yeah, because this time will pass and we'll have the summation of how we spent this time or That's invested right. this time. I've become quite good at yoga, John, which I never do. No, I know. <laughs> And I'm not that flexible. I need to rename yoga, flopping around the floor, but trying really hard with the fun, with having lots of fun. That's what I call yoga. But yeah, it's been a great time to express and move through this experience rather than fighting it, resisting it, and wishing that it wasn't. Because we have to move through it. It's the only way it's going to happen. Thank you so much, Mr. Esther. Thank you so you. much for having me on. What a joy. You're fabulous. So are you, my dear. I love you. I love you too. All right. Big hugs. I miss hugs. <laughs> Big hugs to you. Big Thank hugs you. to your beautiful hubby. Yeah, you too. Thank Bye. you.